Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Lambda Days will be taking place again on the 9th and 10th of February, and it's a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what it gets them motivated to explore this amazing community and all of its potential. This week, the Lambda Days program has been published. All their awesome speakers have confirmed their participation, and the tickets are selling like hotcakes. 39 talks, 3 tracks, 2 days, and an after-party in between. David Turner, John Hughes and Mary Sheeran, Kevin Hammond, Heather Miller, Vizlav Bartoski, and Rob Martin will be speaking in Krakow. And this is just the beginning of their lineup. Check out what awesome talks will take place at Lambda Days around the subjects like FP, Erlang, F-Sharp, Haskell, HPC, Elixir, Elm, JavaScript, CSP, Miranda, Scala, Clojure, Akka, and Rusk. And as part of a partnership with AGH University of Science and Technology and a gesture of general awesomeness on behalf of their speakers, this year they want to offer you something special. Free functional workshops. Visit www.lambdadays.org to register for the conference and the workshops. And if you'd like a discount code, email contact at functionalgeekery.com or DM at fngeekery on Twitter for a code for 15% off the ticket price. CatsConf 2 will be taking place in Dublin, Ireland on the 18th of February. CatsConf has a single-track, not-for-profit conference with hands-on workshops. With an amazing lineup, it looks to be an exciting conference. Visit catsconf.com, that's K-A-T-S-C-O-N-F dot com, for more information and to register. Closure D has been announced and will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on February 25th. Early bird tickets have sold out, but regular tickets are still available, and you can get a discount when you purchase your tickets for BombCop. For more information and to register, visit www.closured.de. The day before Closure D on the 24th of February in Berlin, BobConf will be taking place. Bob has a strong focus on functional programming, and Bob is the forum for developers, architects, and builders to explore technologies beyond the mainstream and to discover the best tools available today for building software. With a keynote by John Hughes, their goal is for all participants to leave the conference with new ideas to improve development back at the ranch. For more information about the conference, visit bobconf.de, that's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E. Elixir Days is coming up on March 2nd and 3rd in St. Augustine, Florida. Early registration is now open, and the conference includes keynotes by Prag Dave Thomas and Sasha Yurch. Visit elixirdays.com. That's elixir, D-A-Z-E, dot com, to keep updated for more information and to register. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural events March 27th through the 30th. The unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops, worked in the day between these sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. Erlang and Elixir Factory 2017 is on the 23rd and 24th of March. This factory includes its tutorials day on the 25th of March and training on the 20th through the 22nd and 27th through the 30th of March. Early bird tickets are on sale through February 26th. To keep updated with information, visit www.erlang-factory.com slash sfbay2017. The Flatmap Oslo call for presentations is open through March 1st. FlatMap Oslo is a FP conference with a focus on Scala and the JVM, taking place on May 2nd and 3rd in Oslo, Norway. Please go to 2017.flatmap.no slash CFP to learn more. Announcements of speakers are being done on Twitter at at FlatMapOslo. Elm Europe will be taking place on June 8th through the 9th in Paris, France. Evan Zaplicki and Richard Feldman will be speaking. The early bird tickets are currently available, but there is no telling how long they will last. 
For more information and to register and to submit your talk, visit elmeurope.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeeker.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Eris Proctor, and this week with us we have Rahul Mutanini. Rahul. Would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hey, Proctor. Hey, listeners of Functional Geekery. I'm Rahul Muchanani, and so I'm the creator of the EDA programming language, which is a dialect of Haskell that runs in the JVM. And I got EDA on the radar from a listener's suggestion, so thanks for sending those suggestions in, because it puts things like this that are out there that are related that aren't even on my radar for topics. So thanks for sending in suggestions. But yeah, I reached out to the organization on the site and said, hey, Who's the person to talk to? And they referred me to you. So I guess before we get into EDA and exactly what EDA is and give an overview of EDA, but what's your background? How did you get into software and how did you kind of get exposed to make it into functional programming? So I started out when I was around 14 years old. So back then I was big into gaming. I used to play like online MMORPGs. I was like very addicted to those. And just one random fine day, I just had a thought. I was like, okay, I really love playing these games. Why don't I make one of my own? So then I found this community called Beyond, which is called Build Your Net Dream. So it's this platform that lets you build online multiplayer games pretty easily. It supports like 2D games. So I got into that. I stuck around, asked around. I didn't know any coding back then. And like, (laughs) I was just like, okay with computers, but I was very persistent and Kept asking around. Eventually, I was able to get to a point where I was able to write things on my own. So it started out with just like getting random game sources and like playing around with it. And eventually, I was able to figure out how things were working. And then I ended up making my own. And the game I made was actually based off of an existing game on Game Boy Advance. There's a series called Mega Man. So uh, I made one based off of that. And it was a huge hit, actually. And like so many people were like playing and it was a community of around, what, 3,000 to around 5,000 people. And of those, around 600 people were playing at the peak. So it was, I, so I had to deal with, like, I had dealt with a good amount of popularity at a very young age. And a lot of people were so happy to help out. We had so many people help out with, like, getting graphics into the game. I wasn't very good at graphics. So I took care of most of the code and getting things working together. But there are a lot of people who helped out with making the UI look nice and everything. So yeah, that's where everything started. And from then on, I just kept on exploring and learning. So my dad was into the enterprise stuff. So like, he's a big Java guy. And he had me <laughs> take a couple of classes on Java and everything, Java EE. So even at, I got into that at a very young age. But I don't know, Java never actually stood out for me at that age. I don't know. It just wasn't as flexible as I wanted a language to be. And the language I was using to build a game was a custom language for that platform. And it was weird form of object-oriented programming. <laughs> so like I was used to that and Java just seemed so, just seemed so verbose. The language I was using was very concise. So I think the first language you start out with actually makes a huge difference in the rest of your programming career sometimes. If you start out with like a really high level language, you start 
wishing for that only. So yeah, from then on, so I didn't do programming exactly. Like I didn't continue programming 24-7 like I did at that age. But then afterwards, I got to high school and uh, I had to focus on studying in college and stuff. So then mathematics was a huge grace for me. At that point, I did a lot of mathematics competitions. So that, I felt, is one of the things that actually got me into Haskell at some point. Because that passion for math is what brought me to Haskell. So I was in my 12th, and I was just sitting in one of my physics classes. And it was at the very end of the year. I was just solving some... There's a website called Project Euler. And most of the problems there are mathematics problems, but they're meant to be solved using some programming language, like you're supposed to code an algorithm and get the answer. The results will be like huge numbers. I started that. And I used Python back then. So Python was good. I was able to get through the first couple of problems. But then there's one problem I got to where the stock Python solution didn't work out. It didn't finish on time. It took, uh, I don't even know if it finished because I was too <laughs> impatient to wait for it, but it took a long time, actually, several minutes, I think. So I started exploring. I was looking at what other people were using to solve the problem. And I As I was looking for the languages people were using to solve all the other problems, I noticed a weird language called Haskell listed in one of the names. So I just decided to give it a try. I looked it up on Wikipedia, as usual. And uh, so it seemed a bit like far out of my league at that point. But I just decided to give it a try. I started with Learning Haskell, the book a lot of people start with. And I started playing around with the interpreter and stuff. And it seemed very nice. So I coded out a solution to that one problem I was stuck with in Python. And Almost the stock solution you would do in Haskell, the recursive one, worked out, and it was much faster, actually. So that was like my first experience, like being able to solve something in Haskell that I couldn't solve in another language very easily. So that left a lasting impression on me, and I knew this language had a huge future to it, and I needed to get into this. Let me make sure I heard that right. This was the end of high school. Yeah. You're working on Project Euler problems in the end, and... Yeah. You decide as a high school student that you're going to pick up Haskell and you actually are able to solve these problems. Right. It kind of shuts down the complete argument of Haskell's unapproachable to beginners amongst other stories that I've heard. But what do you think other than was it just your math background or was there something else about Haskell and maybe the background between Python and these other languages you had exposure to that kind of made you see Haskell for being Haskell and not comparing it to the others and saying, well, it's it's an odd syntax, but what made it kind of click for that first approach and reaching for it besides just finding it on Wikipedia other than just saying, people say this is good, I'm going to try this, that kind of got you and prompted you to pick it up? So actually, I don't remember reading any reviews actually of Haskell at all. I was like this guy who would just see a new language and I'd be like, okay, this this looks interesting. Let me just take a look. So I typically don't spend hours reading, okay, should I learn this language or not? I'll just dive in for the most part. These days I do. <laughs> These days I will because I have less time. I have to like <laughs> research and figure out. But back then I was just a free bird. I was just exploring. So the name also was a bit like, I don't know, seemed a bit different. The name was also somewhat attractive. I don't know. So that was another reason I just wanted to just give it a try and see what it was. And I was very satisfied with it. And I would say it was my mathematics background that really influenced whether I liked it or not. And also back when I was designing that game. So because it got so popular, I got so many feature requests and bugs coming all the time. I faced those problems of software maintenance. It wasn't that big. It was around 
was decently sized, around 8,000 lines. Given that all the graphics handling, network handling, everything was taken care of for you, you just had to code the game logic. So it was 8,000 lines of just game logic. So maintaining that was, I started seeing some of the problems. It was not bad, but I could see it could have been a lot better. So one thing I liked when I saw Haskell was it was very simple to understand. I personally feel that languages like C, Java, the imperative ones, they make things too confusing. Students are already used to maths where variables take a certain value and functions depend on those values only and not anything else. I personally feel that students and like anybody growing up with like basic mathematics, algebra, are comfortable with pure functions. And the concept of procedures and stuff is a bit abstract, I feel, to beginning programmers. At least it was for me. The concept of mutable state and everything was always a pain for me. One thing that irritated me the most was getting a bug where I would like, like in a for loop where you accidentally <laughs> put like a less than or equal to sign instead of a less than sign. Like those kind of things were really irritating for me. And I like that in Haskell, you didn't have to worry about all those fine details, like about array indexing and all that stuff. It's just, okay, this is how like in for loops, you'll mutate the looping variable, right? So if you don't mutate that in the right order and the right sequence, then it screws things up. But when you get to function program, you don't have to worry about mutating and iterating variable. You just say, okay, this is a list. I just want to transform this list into the result. That's it. I don't know. I personally feel it's a lot simpler. It's just, I think the reasons why people say it's so hard to learn is that to use Haskell for real world application, you need to learn quite a number of concepts because a lot of the libraries use them. But I feel Haskell isn't as difficult as a language as the others. It's just that the learning material is very sparse and people use highly complex mathematical terms. They use things like category theory and stuff that makes things a bit confusing in the beginning. But it turns out that all these concepts are pretty similar. Like you'll have functors, monads, all those things. And to the beginner, it'll, it'll seem very crazy. But once you get into it, once you sit down and learn it, then it's like, oh, wow, this stuff is just amazing. It makes things so easy to program. Like you can compose stuff very easily. And I want to set the stage because eventually you get to a place where you start to decide to create Ida. Right. And let's step back, introduce Ida. And I kind of want to continue the path of after that, after we kind of set the stage of what it is before we dig into it deep, how you kind of got into saying we need this language. So first, let's start with the high level view, the elevator pitch of what EDA is. So EDA is a purely functional programming language on the JVM. And it's based on Haskell. And by based on Haskell, I mean, it's almost identical to like the most recent version of Haskell. And so the biggest benefit I see of ETA is that it's like it's a purely functional language on the JVM that can interoperate with the Haskell libraries and has a really nice foreign function interface to interact with Java libraries. So you get the best of both worlds on the JVM. And the JVM is very important because so many applications use it and so many companies have already invested huge sums of money into the JVM so that they're not going to migrate away from anything that doesn't operate on it. So that I felt was the biggest selling point. Like as a language, it's pretty almost identical to Haskell and it'll probably change in the future. But for the most part, it'll probably stay pretty close to Haskell. And so if you get this exposure to Haskell, you got the exposure to Java from your dad being exposed to it. Between then and when you started working and creating EDA, what did that transition look like? That I'm guessing you worked in some industry enough that you said, I have these problems. 
I'd love to use Askel. I can't get this adopted. I got to have something. I can't find anything. But what was that transition and what was the things that were going through your head that made you say, you know what? I'm just going to write a language and I'm going to try and write a Haskell for the JVM. So this started just a couple years ago. I was working Clojure. So I got a contract job for Clojure. I got it. I learned Clojure on the job and I became pretty proficient pretty quickly. Before that, like on all these years since I picked up Haskell in that first time I solved that problem till now, I've always been reading, 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 but very little writing of Haskell code. But at least being able to read Haskell code has impacted how I program in other languages, say, for example, Clojure. So uh, Clojure is pretty close to Haskell. I would say the only difference is that, like, no types. That's, like, pretty big difference. But in terms of mutability and everything, it's pretty nice. It gives some of the same benefits in Haskell about reason about code. So I was working on this contract job in Clojure, and I was going along. And eventually what happened was I would be... So it was a pretty tiny startup I was working for. So like we didn't have testing infrastructure and all that set up. So closure without a proper testing infrastructure is pretty frustrating because I would be pushing a change and suddenly something would break in production. And on the spot, I would have to debug it and quickly deploy a fix. That was painful because too many bugs uh, that you would only find out once you actually run the program. And it was just too irritating. I was just coming from like studying Haskell in my free time it just seemed like, why do we have to deal with this? Why can't we just have a nice language with global type inference that could give you a program that looks like it's written in a dynamic language, for the mo- uh, but still statically typed and gives you those guarantees? So at that point, I was frustrated about that. And then up till that point, I really didn't look up to Java or any of those technologies. I just knew it was used everywhere, but I didn't really like it. So at that point, I actually understood why Java was so important. Up till then, I didn't understand. So that was my first JVM language-based job. There I got an experience of why it was so awesome because what happened was the client I was working for was working without a Clojure developer for almost three months and the application they had was running in production. And what he did was he hired some Java developers to maintain the code base in the meantime while he was looking for another Clojure developer. So that simple fact of being able to fall back on an existing technology that you can easily find people for made me understand the importance of JVM as a platform. And then I understood, okay, so the reason why Clojure, Skull, all these functional languages, the reason why they become so popular so quickly is probably because it was on the JVM and, and they had pretty decent interrupt and they have that fallback mechanism so like they don't have to completely depend on like this really smart functional programmer to maintain their code base at all times. So that one fact had a huge, huge impact. And then I understood, okay, so if Haskell needs to be used, especially the immediate need I had then was, okay, I wanted to pitch Haskell to my client, but we would have to face problems with, again, we'd have to hire more Haskell developers in the future, right? So if I leave and all those things are there. Then I understood, okay, if I was able to get Haskell to somehow work on the JVM, then, okay, I could get it to work in that contract job. I don't have to work with Clojure anymore and get my work done faster and spend less time debugging, get features out. That's when I started exploring to see if something like that existed, and I found Friga. So I did explore it for a couple of days. I was very excited when I found it. So excited, I actually wrote a post to the Friga Google group about like how to get things going and like keep things going, because I noticed that community was a bit inactive. There are two guys in Go and Dear Koenig, so they're pretty active, but besides that, the community was 
I felt was not as active as it should be because I felt like I had just stumbled upon a gold mine being able to run purely functional programs on the JVM. And I was wondering why the community was so inactive. So then I made a post and the post was so energizing that it actually motivated some other people to start working again on, on Friga. So I explored Friga for about a couple of days. And then I started seeing some of the problems. Like one, Friga wasn't documented properly. Things like foreign function interface and everything were pretty hard to figure out how they work. There was only one blog post, as I recall, on how to use FFI in Friga. And it wasn't very clear either. I didn't know all the different, how does it handle all these different cases? There's generics, you have all inheritance, all these features in Java, right? So how does that play in Friga? So that wasn't very clear to me. And the little bit of foreign function interface I saw in Friga in that blog post was, I don't know, it seemed very confusing. If it was confusing for me, I'd just imagine how confusing it'd be for somebody who would be new to functional programming and would see that and they'd be like, oh, wow, I have to go through this much effort just to port a simple Java function. So that was one thing. Another thing was Friga didn't have compatibility with any of the Haskell libraries. Haskell has a pretty big set of packages, pretty large set of packages. And I felt it was, it was almost a waste not being able to use all those libraries properly. So I proposed to the Friga creator, okay, why don't we use STG? Why don't we reuse the GHC frontend, which compiles down to an intermediate language called STG, and then convert that STG code to JVM bytecode. So then you'd be able to run all the Haskell libraries as well. It turns out that converting from STG to the JVM has been a research topic. Like there have been a couple of research papers on it, but no one has actually properly gotten down and implemented it. A lot of people, according to the research papers that I read at the time, they mentioned a lot of performance problems. Like they weren't able to get a proper encoding of purely functional programming to the JVM that would be performant. And this was speaking from a theoretical perspective. So all these papers were written like what? In 2000s, early 2000s. The JVM has come a long way since then. Like there have been lots of performance optimizations. The JIT compiler is like incredibly robust now. It's almost blazing fast in some cases. So I was thinking maybe now that the JVM is more developed, maybe it's time to take another stab at that problem and see how it goes. That's where my path started. So I was excited about Friga in the beginning, but then I realized it would take forever to grow the language because of not being able to reuse what's already there. That's when I started learning about the JVM. So I used to watch lectures from like big JVM people like Charles Nutter. He's the one who actually sold me on the fact that the JVM can actually give good performance and that the JVM is evolving to actually accommodate functional languages and other languages. That's when I decided, okay, let me start working on this problem. Let's see where I can go. So I just started reading some research papers. So as I said, there are only about a handful of research papers on compiling purely functional programs on the JVM. So it's not just purely functional. Also, laziness plays a big factor. And laziness is probably the biggest reason why people haven't don't even want to bother writing the implementation because laziness, while it allows you to have some good reasoning properties of your code, it can also make it very hard to get good performance at certain times. It almost requires you to be like an expert <laughs> in Haskell to be able to improve the performance certain times. And the main problem is there's no existing book on performance. So it becomes a bit difficult. So there I was just reading some papers. Then also, before I even started exploring uh, Friga, I forgot to mention, before that I was actually got into GHC hacking. 
I didn't actually hack exactly. I was just reading the source code. I cloned the GHC source code and I was just reading through it, trying to figure out how pieces together. I actually wanted to start out as a contributor to GHC, but I wanted to do something significant. So that's why I spent more time just trying to understand the code, get a sense of it. So just randomly, whenever I had free time, I would be working on that. So I had that background as well. So I had some basic understanding of how GHC worked. But once I had a practical problem to solve, okay, I want to get this on the JVM, then I started getting more focused. So whenever I would spend my free time like going through the GT runtime system and trying to figure out, okay, how does this work exactly? And how am I going to map each of these primitive concepts in the GT runtime to the JVM? And how do I make that efficient? So generally they'll say, okay, you shouldn't optimize too early. So I optimized quite a bit. When I was thinking of the design, I would be pretty strict about even having too many extra branches, like all these low-level things, like having too many branches or allocating too much memory. So all that stuff I would take into account as I was doing the design to map the GT concepts to the JVM. So as I was going through it, I understood, okay, once I got a good surface level understanding of the runtime system, I was like, okay, maybe this is doable. Let, let me give it a try and see what happens. So far, there is one attempt, actually, to get GHC on the JVM, and that was, there's a thing called Lambda, Lambda VM. That's what it was. So Lambda VM was written in 2011 or sometime before that. So that was a successful attempt, actually, but it got bit rotted. The guy ended up quitting on the project, and it got lost. So you can't even find the source code properly. Uh, later, one guy pointed me to it, but yeah. So it was at least nice knowing, okay, somebody at least tried it and they've shown, okay, it works somewhat. Now I wanted to get it to work for the most recent version of GHC. I learned all the nuances and everything of GHC and tried to map that over. And eventually I got some working design and then I started going for it. So one by one, I used to port bits and pieces of the GHC runtime system over to Java. And then eventually, slowly over time, it became something. (laughs) So I was able to get to a point where it can at least Without even having like a compiler, I was able to at least hand compile a couple of programs to run on this runtime system. So I was able to get just a simple program that uses map and sum. And I hand compiled it, just hand wrote what I expected the compiler to output as a program. And then I plugged it into the runtime system I had. And then it was working. So I understood, okay, this is a workable design. Now let me actually go down and write down that compiler to do the translation process. So there's a bit I want to unpack there. Sure. You start looking at this, you talk about the GHC intermediate language. My understanding is that that intermediate language is a simplified version of Haskell in the same way that Miranda had a subset of languages where it was only a few different things that supported. Is that the intermediate language in GHC or is there something else? So yeah, there's actually multiple. There's another one called Core as well, but that's a bit higher level. It has a type system, but STG doesn't. STG is just execution of the program. So it's just a simple functional language with, imagine a functional language with only let statements and case statements and being able to declare data types. That's it. You don't have much. The Haskell language that we use has lots of what they call syntactic sugar. So it's a lot of syntactic shortcuts that eventually compiled onto this STG intermediate language. And so that helped simplify a lot of the domain then if you were able to just take advantage of these reduced instruction set. And yeah, then you exactly. have to figure out how to translate some of these things in that reduced instruction set into Java, or was that into a Java IL that you were going kind of straight mapping? 
So the mapping was directly to Java byte code. At the time, I didn't have time to design intermediate language, or it's more like I didn't know what to, <laughs> how to design the intermediate language to make it easy for optimization. But what I did was I just did a direct translation from uh, STG to JVM bytecodes. And that was one of those things, because when you get into compilers, it depends on how many passes you're willing to make and how easy you want that to be. So you were able to take advantage of just going and doing a translation from one IL into the equivalent instructions in another intermediate language. Yeah. And then because you're harnessing the JVM, you mentioned a couple things about laziness, FFI, and actually taking other Haskell programs. I guess starting with some of the FFI side, what's the constraint on pulling in some of these Haskell libraries? Do you have to know that there's other FFI? Is it FFI just to Java? Or do you say, well, we support FFI from Java into other languages as well, if we're translating that kind of stuff across these libraries? What does the FFI story kind of look like at a high level? So a good number of packages on Hackage, the package server for Haskell, a good number of packages there are written pure Haskell, meaning as long as you build a compiler that just supports pure Haskell, you can reuse those libraries. But the problem is, at the very core of that ecosystem, you have a handful of libraries, like the base libraries for almost all the other packages that form the basis. So like these are very low-level libraries like byte string used to operate on arrays of bytes in an efficient manner in Haskell. And there's the basic data structure libraries like containers. And you have the text library for operating on text. So all these require the C4 and function interface. They use C functions to get the most performance. So if you want to port those libraries, you pretty much have to replace those C foreign function interface calls with the Java foreign function interface call that maintains the semantics. So if you had something like Friga, because of the slight differences in the language, you won't be able to parse the packages on Hackage without making it almost identical to Haskell, making sure the parser is compatible with Haskell itself. Another thing with Friga is that Haskell has a lot of advanced language extensions that a lot of libraries use. Like you have things like type families, like for type level programming. You have all those other related ones to facilitate type level programming. And those aren't present in Friga. So like even if you were able to replace those CFFIs with Java FFIs, you wouldn't have that same compatibility. And Friga is enabled to compile those basic libraries. It's not even because of the extensions, it's because of the semantics as well of the language. GHC has a thing called primitive operations. So these are the lowest level operations that eventually gets down to. For example, adding two integers at the machine level. So that's like a primitive operation. You obviously can't do that in just a purely functional language. Things like making new threads and using a software transactional memory. So that also requires primitive operations. So in order to be able to support all these libraries, there's about, what, a couple hundred, almost to a thousand primitive operations you have to support. But a good chunk of them are vector primitive operations. They compile down to vector instructions. So if you take out those, so if you ignore those because they're only used by a couple of libraries like Data Parallel Haskell and the vectorization optimization, vectorization flag, I think, in GHC. So if you take out those vectorization primitive operations, you'll have maybe a couple hundred primitive operations you have to implement. So if you don't implement those primitive operations, you won't be able to compile these core libraries, those base libraries because they're the ones who use those primitive operations the most. Once you get those base libraries, you're able to get almost the rest of the ecosystem with minor tweaks here and there. Okay. 
that gives a good picture of the ability of reporting it. But you also mentioned your goal was to give some good FFI with Java. You're getting some of that because you have to do that for being able to pull in these libraries. But if you're talking about making sure you can take advantage of the Java ecosystem, how does some of that play? If you're trying to have this Haskell-type language where you've got strong types, you've got immutability first, you've got a bunch of this stuff, eventually laziness if you can, but you're interacting with an OO world of Java that loves mutability, that loves all these other things that are kind of at odds with Haskell's core's values. So how does the FFI play in between if you want to use something like Joda time for your time and a Haskell library or any one of those things where you're calling out and taking advantage of the existing Java ecosystem? Yeah, as you mentioned, in Java, there's a lot of mutability and stuff. But there's also, in practice, when you actually start porting libraries in Ida, you find that a lot of libraries are pretty decently designed in the sense that there's a good set of objects that are just immutable. There's a builder pattern in Java where you just construct the object and then for the most part, it's constant over the period of your program. So in cases like that, you can actually, when you import it into Ida, you can import it purely, meaning it'll look like there won't be a monadic context. There won't be a monadic return type. It'll just be all just types. So yeah, but obviously that's only for like a small subset of cases like config objects. So those things won't change that much over time. But then you'll have things like the state of like a database connection pool and those kind of things. So how do you handle those? So in Haskell, you have a thing called an IORF, which is like a way to get a mutable variable in Haskell. But you can only read and write to it inside the IO monad. So only when you explicitly state that you're going to be performing side effects, can you actually read and write to that mutable variable. So the nice part about IORFs is at least it's like, it does mutation in a controlled way. Like you can only do it inside the IMA, so it's a lot more controlled. So let's say you try to now map that to the JVM. So what EDA pretty much does is it creates a boxed EDA type, and inside that box will be that Java object or that primitive Java type, like int or long or whatever. So now, since you're boxing that native Java object inside of EDA, now you have layer of interaction where you can enforce that purity and all that stuff. I mean, you can't enforce it completely, but at least gives you that layer of interaction where you can control the order, order in which things execute and stuff. The core concept that allows this FFI concept to work in EDA is I introduced a new primitive type called object hash. So in GHC, behind every int, every double, every whatever primitive thing you see in Haskell is a low-level primitive type. Okay, I should say every basic type you see in Haskell, like int, is actually just a box type, which contains a primitive type inside. I extended that concept for Java objects as well. So now in EDA, you have boxed Java objects with a primitive Java object in the core. So by doing this kind of thing, it allows you to reuse the type system in Haskell because the Haskell type system only works for non-primitive types, like the polymorphism, the parametric polymorphism, all that stuff only works for box types. So this allows you now to use Java objects and everything with type classes, all that stuff with that extra layer of interaction. So one question that'll come up is, okay, with this layer of interaction, want to be less performant. Well, it turns out that GHC actually does lots of good optimizations that unbox this stuff. So if you have an algorithm that processes this boxed object, what GHC will do is it'll actually unbox the object and then it'll operate directly on that internal value and then box up the result. So the core algorithm itself will be done in an unbox fashion. But just the entry to the algorithm and the exit to the algorithm will be boxed. 
And if I were to come into EDA, do I write an adapter for some of these stuff if it doesn't exist where I kind of write something in Java and help do that boxing to the interface that the standard library provides? Or is that something that EDA kind of helps take care of to some extent for me? And I don't have to really do as much adapting and making it to the type system and the like. Okay. So all this boxing, you never even have to worry about in EDA. It's stuff only I worry about and probably maybe EDA library editors who work with like the very low level stuff will have to worry about. But at the language level, I've tried to offload most of that boxing work onto the part that desugars the FFI declarations. So a lot of that boxing is taken care of for you. So you can almost treat the Java object directly. You don't have to unbox it, apply the Java method, and then rebox. That stuff is taken care of for you. So what you do is, Nita, you declare what's called a Java wrapper type, or JWT. And it's just a simple declaration where you state, okay, this is the EDA type. This is the name of the EDA data constructor. And this is the Java class that this type corresponds to. So then that EDA type you've declared acts as a handle for the FFI. So now you can use that whenever you want to import something. So like, let's say you want to call a method on that. So when you're importing that method, you name that EDA type and then the other related parameters, and then you'll get the result. Okay. And that's what I was wondering is the level that people have to go to to do this, but it sounds like most of the scenarios are handled unless you're doing something really deep in EDA. Right. And so you've got EDA out there. We're kind of talking about EDA stemming from the problem of adoption in Haskell and its usage and getting it integrated into companies. People like the ideas, they'll take the ideas back, but actually getting Haskell into the workplace environment usually gets a little bit tricky just because there's that argument of, well, are we going to be able to find people? Are we going to be able to train people? And the like. And I know that's one of your motivating factors for EDA is to be able to have this stuff and have it more accessible and get that broader usage. What are you finding now at this point of the excitement around EDA and having a Haskell style system on the JVM? So excitement has been huge, actually. Just three weeks ago, I think it was about three weeks ago, we released our website. So actually, uh, I should mention one more thing. Like, so we started a company, me and my wife, we started a company to uh, take this language forward and to give people confidence that, okay, these people can work full time. This, this thing is going to st- stick around for a long time and they can safely invest money, time, whatever into using this language. So she made a really awesome, awesomely designed website for Edo and that just took off. So <laughs> we got almost a traffic of around... 50,000 in about a couple of days only. And it's still like fairly constant. Now it's not as big, but it's fairly constant. So that's when we really understood, okay, this is like the, there's a huge amount of excitement around this because there's a lot of people that actually learn Haskell in their spare time. Like the programmers who really want to go beyond the technologies that they're using, they want to become better. They learn Haskell. And the thing is they never end up actually using it anywhere because well, there's many reasons, like probably there's not enough time to get into that. But one of the biggest reasons that I found through research I've done is that being able to interoperate with the existing systems and given that Java is probably one of the most widely used, widely deployed technologies, being able to make Haskell interoperate with Java pretty smoothly would be, I personally had a gut feeling that it would make a huge impact in uh, adoption. 
Okay, and just seeing a site, it's hard to necessarily know how recent it went live, but I didn't even realize that you all had just went live with your site that recently. Yeah, what happened was the FFI was talking about wasn't very stable, actually, for a long time. I didn't know what the best way to do it was, and I had made lots of changes in the past three, four months trying to get it stable. I tried porting some libraries. Any issues I found in the FFI would try to add a new feature to make it simpler or easier. For example, subclassing. In Friga, you don't actually have any concept of inheritance or subclassing inside of Friga. So you just deal with the object itself. So in EDA, I wanted to make that very simple and easy. I, I wanted to make it so that people didn't have to re-import a method for the subclass as well and make it very cumbersome. So I, I use some of the advanced language extensions, like multi-parameter type classes and stuff, to give this strongly typed environment to inheritance inside of EDA. So you can actually, at compile time, determine whether a Java class inherits from another class. And this is facilitated through the use of type families. I'd mentioned JWTs before. So when you declare JWT, you also declare, you can declare the parent class and also any interfaces it implements which are also EDA types, then at compile time, it'll compute, okay, are these two types subclassing of each other? If they are, it allows you to use the method on that type. So you actually got a really convenient way to use subclasses inside of EDA as well. And real quick, because I want to give some time to talk about the status of EDA and where the roadmap is and everything, but I'd be remiss because you mentioned it and I made mention, and I know the listeners who are the hardcore high school people will be asking, you brought up laziness. And it's the JVM, and the JVM is not lazily evaluated. Are you accounting for that and doing tricks to help make it lazy? Or are you kind of saying, this is EDA, but we're not taking the lazy aspect. We're embracing the, and not having to deal with all the time-space constraints or the space leaks or time leaks or whatever that is talked about when you're dealing with lazily evaluated stuff. Where's the story on lazy real quick in EDA? So EDA is 100% lazy. So I went through extra effort to make sure that Edo was lazy because I personally felt like, okay, there's many other strict languages on the JVM. And I think it would be cool to see what it would be like to have a, like a fully lazy language on the JVM. So it does have full support for laziness. But having said that, I'm not sure how many people know this, but GHC actually does a lot of optimizations to take out that good chunk of the laziness. But yes, you'll still deal with some aspects of laziness in production applications. So how it works is basically there's a concept called a thunk. So a thunk is an unvalued expression. It's like the primitive when you implement lazy evaluation. So you have thunks in EDA. So you have thunks that get evaluated and then they get catched. And then when you try to reuse the value from a thunk again and later in your program, then you'll just use a catch value. So the interesting part about this is it's really hard to run benchmarks for EDA like uh, proper JVM benchmarks. In JVM, you have to account for JIT warmup and everything. So a uh, week back, we were running a benchmark and we found that, oh, wow, it is going too fast. And it turns out that on subsequent runs, it was using a catch to value. So it turns out that the speed, the super fast speeds that we we're seeing were was actually just laziness <laughs> catching the dunked value. So benchmarking becomes a bit more tricky with Edo. But yeah, so in terms of space leaks and that stuff, so I personally feel that space leaks are just as bad as memory leaks. They're just easier to make. It's easier to make space leaks than memory leaks. But I feel like once the tooling around detecting space leaks gets better, 
I feel like it won't be as big of a problem when it comes to production applications. And before we get into current status of EDA and where it's going and how people can find out more and get started, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you at least want to bring up before we start wrapping up and getting into making EDA approachable and giving audience a better understanding of EDA that we haven't covered or that you've just realized that maybe I need to go talk about that a little bit more. That's it. I don't think I've missed anything. Okay. So let's move on to the status of Vita. You just put the site live three weeks ago. You're getting this interest. If someone listens to this episode as well and says, if nothing else, this is another Haskell I can play with that makes it more approachable to learn Haskell because I've already got a Java environment or whatever. What does the landscape for starting with Ida now and where do you kind of see it going in the future? So just to make sure I'm understanding the question, you want to know how do you get started with Ida? Is that how does one get started and what does Ida look like now for just if people get attracted and interested? We kind of gave over what Ida is and kind of where the status is, but coming in, is there documentation out there? Is it pretty much still standard Haskell? What does it look like for someone who's going to be reaching for this and say, this is, I think this might be worth checking out? As of now, because the language is almost identical to Haskell right now, besides the FFI, we invest a lot of time in just documenting the FFI. So like, if you go to the Edelang website and you go to the documentation, <laughs> in the documentation, I'll just redirect you to read books on Haskell or something. But the rest of the documentation will all be written just about how the Java FFI works using the Java monad and et cetera, and how you work with subclassing, how do you work with generics, in Java and all that stuff. It's enough. Like I've had people come in, they just get started. And within a couple hours, like one guy just came in within a couple hours, he was able to get JDBC working pretty easily. So the documentation is pretty comprehensive. I mean, even now, just yesterday, I pushed in a couple of changes to the FFI. So it's still evolving. But for the most part, it's pretty stable. But there's just minor bug fixes and stuff that are still going on in the FFI. For the most part, it's pretty stable. And in terms of being able to use it right now. So one interesting point is that just I've been working with a client here in India, a startup that they have a bunch of people who are interested in functional programming and they use Spark. So they thought it, was pretty, it would be pretty cool to try try and see what happened if you try to interface either with Spark. So I've been working on that for the past couple of weeks and it's doing pretty well. So just last night I was able to get it working, processing pretty large data sets. So there were actually a couple of bugs in the runtime system I ran into, but I was able to fix them pretty quickly. And now it's pretty nice. So it, at the current state, you can actually start using EDA for production applications. And in terms of packages, I mentioned that you have to, in some Haskell packages, you have to port the FI dependencies. We've actually ported almost all the core libraries. So like you have access to a good chunk of hackage. You can use Lens. So Lens is a huge dependency heavy library, but you can still use it. You can use Lens, you can use all those crazy abstraction-heavy libraries. You can also use ASIN. So the Spark application I've been working on in EDA for that client, it uses ASIN and it uses a bit of containers. And so basically all those standard packages you used to in Haskell, you can reuse in EDA as well, and they work. And then if someone's going to get started in it, you sold them that it's stable enough that they can start checking out and at least start writing their Haskell on the JVM. Is that they pull up their favorite editor, be it Emacs, VI, Atom, IntelliJ or something, and then use the command line to compile? What does that rough getting started session look like? Yeah. 
All right. So yeah, so that's how it works right now. So basically, you'll just since because of the uh, syntactic similarities, you can reuse like the Haskell plugins. And also the file extension, we still kept as HS to make sure that all these editors will syntax validate properly and everything. So once we get proper editor support, like that's still in the works, we're just focusing on uh, getting the basic platform built. But probably within a couple of months, we'll start putting a lot of focus on ID. Though what it looks like right now, for example, me, I'll use, I use SpaceMax and I have a Haskell plugin enabled and then I can, I develop an ETA with that. But the only issue is because of some of the syntactic differences, especially the FFI, some of the Haskell ID backend tools won't be able to recognize it and therefore will fail. So you won't get things like being able to inspect types at compile time, that kind of stuff you won't get right now. But you'll at least get the basic syntax highlight, basic auto-completion, you can get that stuff. If you're working with a pure Haskell file and not like a file that does FI imports. And this gets down into, then they just take the Haskell files, whether they wrote it or they are importing it. They run it through the EDA compiler. They don't need to do any other steps for, for GC, GHCI, then EDA, or what's... So there's no uh, interactive interpreter just yet. So we still need to get around to porting that. That's actually another project in itself, <laughs> getting the interpreter working. So that's currently in the pipeline. So we'll probably have it out within a couple of months or so. But what you'll do is we have a thing called the EDA package manager. So it's basically just cabal from the Haskell ecosystem with a lot of tweaks to account for the JVM ecosystem. So you would use EPM, the command to run your program. So it's just once you can initialize a project with EPM, just do EPM in it, you'll have your project set up, write some code, and then just do EPM run. So EPM run will build your code and also run your program when built successfully. Okay, that sounds good. And some of this is setting that foundation for, I'm sure there are some listeners out there who like Haskell are still tied to the JVM and figure if they can get this kicked off, maybe they can pull it in. And so trying to set that foundation for where you all might be looking for help or where someone could contribute and be valuable that says, well, if we've got this kind of support, where do we need to go fit in? And I'm sure you could, they could reach out and get an idea specifically from you. But if they had those ideas to say, here's the kind of stuff that, as you've already outlined, are on your roadmap, but they've got that interest in helping, that it helps set that foundation for, this is still a place to be actively involved and get in early enough. It sounds like that you can help and provide a lot of value for getting this thing up and running and get it delivered even quicker, it sounds like. Right. So actually, we're in very good shape right now. Like the only issue right now is we only have a handful of people working and we have people contributing stuff like random people start coming in, they'll contribute maybe a new example of using FFI or something. For example, uh, recently people have made examples of connecting with JDBC. Another one was making a Neo4j procedure instead of Edo. So the best way I could see uh, in terms of contributions right now for people who want to get in is basically being able to port these very uh, widely used Java libraries like JDBC and building a nice Haskell-like high-level type-safe API on top of that. So that's a place where lots of people can come in and start contributing. And in terms of EDA itself, I guess you could also use lots of help in documentation. So there's lots of stuff that's undocumented still. Like There's actually a lot more features than what documentation says. Even in terms of FFI, there's some features I missed out when documenting, but it covers the basic gist. So we could use help in documentation. We could use help in people writing bindings to very widely used Java libraries. Like right now in TypeLead, our company that supports this, we put a focus on getting full Spark bindings out. Spark, Hadoop, 
we feel like for Ida, the future will be in that ecosystem. So we've been putting a lot of effort into writing good bindings for that. So besides that, we could use from computer side, we could use help with all the other stuff like JDBC, good database access, being able to, JSON parsing is taken care of now since we have ASIN working, but yeah, like all those other things we would need. Next thing coming up is a web framework. So for that, you need to be able to translate a Java servlet to a WAI application. WAI is a web application interface. It's a universal interface for Haskell web frameworks. So if you can get that working, you can also get web services written in Ida pretty soon. So there's lots of lots of room for people to come in and help out. It sounds like it. And it sounds like it's one of those things that, based off the way you've described it so far, has that good foundation. And then it's just helping to contribute to the ancillaries, whether it's the documentation and even getting started for someone. Or as you mentioned, some of these are the libraries that you need that FFI interop for. But wanted to make sure we at least gave you the opportunity to call out some of those things specifically so people could start chewing it over in their minds about, hey, maybe this is a good place to write some Haskell, take advantage of the JVM. I kind of know both of these areas. How do I tie them together? Because this would be a dream for me if I'm one of those people on the JVM that do the Haskell on the side, as you said, that I can now have a nice platform for Haskell and maybe eventually sell it into the office because it's now a supported platform. Right. So is there anything else? You mentioned the company that you started, and we'll get links to that on the show notes. We'll get links to Ida in the show notes. Is there anything else that you want to make mention and plug or call out or anybody in particular you want to give a shout out to? This is kind of the chance to help make sure that people get their dues or that we get the things covered that you want to get covered. Yeah, so there are a couple people I'd like to thank for like so all the things that have been going on so far. The first is my wife, who's been incredibly supportive and she's actually uh decided to completely dive into working on this full-time helping me out with getting the business set up and taking care of all those aspects that i'm not particularly good at the legal aspects the business aspects and everything because those are also very important in order to get this into industry as well and i'd also like to thank my parents and also my in-laws because they're they've been incredibly supportive We've been bootstrapped for all these months, and we're actually pretty close to closing a round of funding. So it's been tough all these months, like not having like a constant source of income, but it's with the support of all these people that we've been able to keep going. And I'm sure the community will shout out once they start picking up Ida and give additional thanks to them for helping make sure that Ida made it as far as it has. So, Right. <laughs> and I'm also thankful for all those people who just randomly come in and report bugs. Like I actually love getting bug reports because it's like, okay, like for me, I don't feel comfortable knowing that there's a bug somewhere. So like that, I also get very happy when people start submitting bug reports. <laughs> so thanks to all those people who've done that. And also people who've contributed to uh, Ida as well, who's been spending their time and free time to contribute. As bad as bugs are, at least you know it's being used, right? Right. <laughs> so we kind of mentioned your company. And I will get that in the show notes. Where can people find you? Where can people find Ida? What's the best places that you want to point people to for more information? Is there blogs? Is there other Twitter accounts? Is there, besides the GitHub site, which we'll put in the show notes, where do you want to recommend to point people to, to get started and check out more and find out more and follow along as Ida's progress develops? So the best place is first, you could head over to the Ida Lang website. 
And the most active channel communication we have right now is Gitter. That's the most active one. So if you go and get an ask a question, you'll definitely get a response from somebody. And after that, you have the mailing list. So if you aren't a big fan of chat rooms or anything, but you still want to keep in touch with what's going on, the best place would be the Google group. So just subscribe to the Google group. We'll post announcements on what's going on, when it's ready, any libraries are ported, or any features we've added. We'll post regular updates at least once a week on the Google group. And we also have a Slack channel that's not as active, but at least we're on it and we'll respond if anybody wants to use Slack instead of Gitter. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter. We have at Ida underscore Lang. And for anybody who's interested in getting like any support in getting Ida set up in their company, they can get in touch with us on typely.com. We have a simple messaging form that'll send us a direct email to our company's email address. And I'll get all those links in the show notes. So if people are driving or mowing the lawn or working out or whatever they do while they listen to this, they can go back, find it in the show notes and get all those links so they can make sure they get to the right place. All right. Awesome. Sounds good. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the loco. And once again, I'd like to thank you, Rahul, for taking the time to join me today. It was interesting and enlightening because, again, I only came across Ida as a recommendation from a listener and they saw the summary of it's a Haskell on the JVM, but gave a good benefit of the picture of what a Haskell on the JVM looks like since I had no idea what that would even translate into. So thanks for taking the time to join me today and sharing some information about your background and Ida. Thanks for having me, Proctor. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.